Well, I don't know about you. It's football season, and man, I love a good football game. And you know, one of my favorite things that I like to see in a football game, and it doesn't happen very often, it's when they kick the ball off and they receive it in the end zone, and the guy says, "Man, I'm just going to go for it," and he takes off, and he he breaks like half a dozen tackles. You know, juking this way, twirling that way, spinning that way, almost getting tackled five yards from the touchdown, right? This guy makes a, a, a diving leap, touches his heels. The guy starts tripping and stumbles into the end zone for a touchdown. And, you know, I, I love that. And it's so exciting, especially if it's my team, right? But the truth is, there's just a sense of inevitability, especially when you watch the replay and you know it's going to be a touchdown, right? But you just watch him as he's juking and twisting, and it's like, this is phenomenal, breaking tackle after tackle. Church, I want us tonight to see, as we read, as we study this passage, that we see this inevitability with regard to the gospel's success. You know, in, in all honesty, we, I don't think we thoroughly get this. And I'll, I'll have to admit there are times in which I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant. And I'm ashamed to say this. There's times I'm hesitant to share the gospel because I'm wondering, but will they receive it? And sometimes in our culture, there is such a weariness that can come over us because people, the gospel's the good news, but the world is like so totally disconnected, waters it down and, and literally washes it away. And by the time you, know, you, you share the gospel with them, it's like, well, I don't agree with that and you know, this and that. And it's like, do people in our day just not get it? And tonight, and, and they don't, by the way, but I want us to know that there is this inevitability regardless of what Satan is doing to shut your mouth, to shut down your testimony. God wants to use you, and he wants to use you in a powerful way. We're going to see that in the passage tonight. Lazarus, excuse me, in, in John six forty five. remember Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And then he says, everyone, not some, but church, listen, everyone. I want you to get the sense of inevitability. Everyone who listens to and learns from the Father comes to Jesus. Let me just say that again. Inevitably, everyone that the Father teaches and that they listen to and learn from the Father, they will believe. Now, I can't sort through all of that. I understand there's free will. I understand in the sovereignty of God. But this passage clearly teaches the inevitability of when God is working in some hearts, they will come to him. Their hearts are being drawn to him. And we're going to see some of this inclination as God is working in some hearts to come to Jesus. When you share the gospel, God wants to work in that person's heart beyond what you can see. Beyond what you can see. So I, I went to get my hair cut today. You can see I did not have my ears lowered. I did have my hair shortened. And consequently, I, the whole way there, I'm just praying, God, give me an opportunity to share with this guy, to share with this person. And I felt like the guy did a fine job with cutting my hair. Um, since Sarah 
Jeffords has moved on. I've come to this place twice now. I like the way this guy did it, so I'm going to come back. His name's Carlos, and I'm going to be praying for Carlos. As a matter of fact, I might, I just might get my hair cut more frequently just so I can talk to him more and share Jesus with him. We'll see. Last, this is, this, in, in John 12, this is the context. In chapter 11, Jesus is raised from the dead and his resurrection impacts many who not just saw it with their own eyes, blew them out of the water, but now they hear it from those who testify. This is what we saw. And the word is spreading throughout Jerusalem. And these people, this crowd that we're going to look at, is, they're hungry for the truth. And they go out to meet Jesus. Remember, this is Palm Sunday. And the Pharisees, they can't stop it. They want to kill Jesus. But no matter what they do, it just seems like the people, just, they just want to believe him all the more. And there's this frustration that you can feel in the Pharisees' hearts. Now remember, in chapter 12, last week, we looked at this sincere, extravagant devotion on Mary's part, Mary, the sister of Lazarus. In this time to honor him in Simon the leper's house, and she just, she takes this year's worth of perfume, breaks it, and pours it on Jesus' feet. Now, she had, it, other gospels say that she poured it on her head, so we do know she poured it both on her head, on his head, and on his feet. But John wants to focus on the feet, and there's reason for that. This is an example of Mary, as a believer in Jesus, just this extravagant devotion to him. And that becomes a clear picture in which John is saying, this is what faith is. Faith is when you look at Jesus and you're saying he's worth more than anything in this world. If you had to pay whatever a year's worth of your salary is, if that's what you had to pay to receive eternal life, would you do it? Would you do it? And I'm going to tell you, you don't have to do that because it's free, but I'm going to tell you this, it will cost you everything, and I'm not contradicting myself. It will cause, this, it will be, you'll have to be like Mary, surrender to him and worship him. Amen. Now, before we launch into the study in John 12, I want you to turn to Psalm 118. This passage that we're going to look at before we get there, and we're going to Look at it. We're going to go back to it even after we've read John 12. But I want us to just, we're going to, I'm going to read a few verses, kind of set things up a little bit, and then we're going to go to John 12. We'll come back to this, but that's what we're going to do here. So I'm kind of throwing you a bit. Maybe you're already in John 12. Keep your thumb there, but turn with me to Psalm 118. This actually, Psalm 118 is actually the backdrop to Palm Sunday, believe it or not. It's the backdrop to Palm Sunday, not the whole psalm. The whole psalm is this sense of the king of Israel is wanting deliverance in which the enemies surround him. God, you come through and you deliver. And I want to start reading. I'm only going to read first three verses to begin with. Follow me now. Psalm 118, starting with verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. That's a quote, by the way, in 1 first, in first Peter chapter 2. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in his eyes. This is the day 
that the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, man, that's a song that takes me back to the 1970s. That's when I first learned it. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. That's right, exactly. We can sing that song after the sermon. But the truth is, that's the, when you sing that song, that's what this is about. So let me just back up. I'm only going to take a few minutes here, but it's important we know this as we talk about Palm Sunday. The stone that the builders rejected, this is a Davidic psalm. This is about the king of Israel. This is about David but understand it's also about the coming Messiah as king. So what is the stone for David's time anyway that the builders rejected? See, it was David himself. Saul wanted to kill him and David had to flee for his life. He is that stone. A prophetic word was given over him that he would one day become king of Israel. That stone, David, was rejected by Saul his kingdom, and consequently, he fled for his life. We don't know how long he was a fugitive, maybe a few years, maybe five or ten years. We don't know. But when he was 30, the stone the builders rejected, that Saul had rejected, now became the capstone, the cornerstone. Well, it's, it's the main stone. The, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the main stone. Though David was rejected, now he's exalted from shepherd to king. And God did this. God is the one who exalted him now as king over all of Israel. This is the day that the Lord has made. That day in which David was coronated as king. But I did say, didn't I, that this is also a messianic psalm. So what is the stone that the builders rejected? See, that is Jesus as the stone, a living stone. He was rejected by the builders. That is the religious leaders of his day. But he has, by the very fact that he not just died on the cross, rose from the dead, now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that day is the day the Lord has made Jesus, reigning as king, seated at the right hand of the Father, accomplished salvation for all mankind who would believe. And now, the psalmist says, this is what God has done. This is the day that we will rejoice and be glad in. Okay? So, it's very clear that not only does this apply to David, but it also applies to Jesus himself. And you're probably wondering, what on earth does this have to do with Palm Sunday? You're going to see in just a moment. So turn with me now to John chapter 12. And church, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm always excited when I've read a passage many, many times. And when I sit down, it's like something jumps out and it's like, why had I not seen all of this before? And I'm hoping you're going to share in that excitement with me tonight as we look at John 12 and then back to John, uh, Psalm 118. So now I'm going to read just uh, several verses here. John 12, starting with verse 12, and I'm going to read through verse 19. John 12, 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast, Passover feast, that is, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches 
and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, that is, after his resurrection, death, resurrection, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Not only that it was, re, it was prophesied in the Old Testament, i.e. Psalm 118, but that they had done these things to fulfill this, this prophecy, and we're going to see exactly what Jesus fulfilled. Man, it's, it, it's exciting. I, I, it really, truly is. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the dead... And raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Verse 18. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And in the very next passage that we'll look at next week, we're going to see just what they mean by this idea, the whole world has gone after him. It says right there, the next day. Now, the next day, remember Jesus arrived Saturday evening. The next day would have been Sunday. That's why it's called Palm Sunday, right? (coughs) Flavius Josephus says in his writings in the first century that when the Romans attacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, there were approximately 1.1 million people in the city. Now, some people say he was exaggerating because the city can really only hold a couple hundred thousand, which is a lot, but it can't hold 1.1 million. And so people have suggested, well, maybe it's during the entire feast of Passover, which is when the Romans attacked. It was during the Passover time. That the city swelled... And that the entire number of people in and out of that city and staying in the suburbs amounted to 1.1 million. My my point is, when he says a great crowd, he means a great crowd. Hundreds of thousands of people gathered in and out of the city. When it says in the next verse, verse 13, they took palm branches, may I suggest they refers to some of this great crowd, not every single person in this great crowd. We get this when we look down at verse 18. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, raising Lazarus from the dead, went out to meet him. So the synoptics say that Jesus' disciples met Jesus just as he was cresting the Mount of Olives and heading down into the Kidron Valley, then he would need to rise up on this path. That's generally where they would start singing songs of ascent as they would go up to a festival. (coughs) Excuse me. And the synoptics say that as Jesus was descending the Mount of Olives, that's when his disciples began laying down cloaks, cloaks, palm branches, and singing Hosanna to the Son of David. This crowd... It says that when they heard Jesus was coming, that's when they went out to see him. 
Now, he's in Bethphage. That's where he gets his donkey. That's just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. I'm soon going to suggest this crowd is more than likely not the crowd that initially meets him. There's a crowd that meets him as he crests the hill. Then there's another one just outside the city. That's this crowd. They're not all believers, but they're interested. They have heard the good news about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Who's ever done that? They don't know of anybody who's ever been raised from the dead. And they're curious. What on earth? Who is this guy? Now, they identify him as the king of Israel, and they're hungry, church. They want to know the truth. And they go out, and they are shouting, Hosanna. This crowd, they're hungry. Now, I want you to notice five things. And after I'm done mentioning the five things mentioned here, we're going to go back over to Psalm 118, okay? So when we do that, keep your fingers in John 12. Here we go. It says they took palm branches. Do you see that in verse 13? They took palm branches at, a pass, at the Passover feast, verse 12, and they shouted, Hosanna, verse 13. And Hosanna, that's number three, Hosanna is the Greek way of saying Hoshia or Hoshana. Now, there's no sh sound in Greek, so it's a s Hosanna. And that's just, that's a, um, a variation of save or save us. Now, we get our word, our, our names, Hosea, from this Hebrew verb, and we also get Joshua or Yeshua from this very same verb. Do you know what Jesus' name in Hebrew is? It's Yeshua. Jesus in Greek, Yeshua. So they are to Jesus saying this Hosanna, which is related to his very name, Jesus, Yeshua. So they're shouting, save us, which basically is lead us to victory, save us. I, I can only imagine the implication is in, with regard to Roman rule. But they're shouting, shouting Hosanna. Then they say, blessed is he, that's number four, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they shout, blessed is the king of Israel. Those five things, I'm going to repeat them. They have palm branches. They're doing this at a Passover feast. They're shouting Hosanna. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And blessed is the king of Israel. Now, put your finger right there in John 12 and turn back with me to Psalm 118. I need to keep reading. Are you ready? What did we just learn about? That this is a messianic psalm. This is about the king of Israel, right? This is about David, the king of Israel, and it is messianic regard to the Messiah who will be the king of Israel. Verse 25. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. Yahweh is God. And he has made his light shine upon us with boughs in hand. That's tree branches. Boughs in hand join in the festal procession. So we see here. Give me one moment. We see here that they are shouting Hoshia, Hoshia, 
Literally, what they're saying is, oh, Yahweh, save us now. I don't know why the NIV doesn't translate that. The, the, uh, the, the NASB adds, we beseech you. Oh, Yahweh, save us, we beseech you. Oh, Yahweh, grant us success now, or we beseech you. There's this sense of urgency in what they're shouting. This isn't something, oh, hey, Hosanna, Hosanna, yay, Hosanna, like you would just like shout for your team to, team to win in a football game. No, there is this sense of desperation here. We beseech you, do this now. Grant us success. Save us. Now, I, you need to remember that. Then we already learned that this stone that was rejected that become the capstone, that is the king. So there's, this, there's number two there. Number three, they, he says right here in verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then they do so with bows in their hand and they do so in the festal procession. Do you see that in verse 27? With bows in hand, join in the festal procession. It's as if they are following the king into Jerusalem and, and he is taking them through the city. So do you see that? Now listen, this psalm is profoundly prophetic and it was fulfilled on Palm Sunday. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, church, where did he go? Do you happen to remember? Let me read Mark eleven eleven to you. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went to Bethany with the 12. It's the next morning that he actually overturns the money changers tables. He cleanses the temple Monday morning. So Jesus, it says apparently late afternoon, as people are shouting, he makes his way to the temple. And I just wanna ask you this, what do you think he sees? I think he sees two things. Number one, the really obvious, he sees money changers. And he's just wondering what are they doing in this sacred place? But do you think he sees anything else? Now, here is something I had not seen before. Psalm 118. I tricked you because I did not read the entire verse, did I? The Lord is God. He has made his light shine upon us. Do you see that in Psalm 118, 27? With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Where does the king go? When he comes into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple. And where in the temple does he go? He goes to the altar. What happens on that altar during a festal procession, especially during Passover? That's where the Passover lamb is sacrificed. As Jesus comes into the temple, the, 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 the Gospels don't say he goes right up to the altar, but can you, I can only imagine he is fulfilling this passage. He at least sees it. Church, I want to tell you that just five days later, that Lamb of God that John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that Lamb of God saw the altar where the Lamb, the Passover Lamb would be slain, and that was him. Jesus led them into Jerusalem, led them into the temple, and he sees that altar, and he is answering their cry. 
What was their cry? Tell me one more time. Starts with an H. Save us. They're saying to the Lamb of God, the Paschal Lamb of God, save us, King of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Did they understand what they were saying? John says they don't. But here's what they were really saying. Jesus, Lamb of God, save us. King of Israel, save us. So where did Jesus take them? To the altar. To the altar. Where he would be sacrificed. Now literally he was not sacrificed on that altar. But he was sacrificed just outside. See the temple is in the northern part. And just outside one of the temple gates is Golgotha. And that's where Jesus died on the cross. That's where the Passover lamb was sacrificed. Interesting. Takes him to the horns of the altar the horns of the altar were on all four corners. In Hebrew, the word horn is generally a symbol of strength and power. Strength and power that surrounds this altar where the Lamb of God would be sacrificed. Do you want strength? Do you need help for deliverance? Deliverance from the Roman army? No! Deliverance from sin and Satan? Yes. Do you need strength in this altar? then the Lamb of God must be sacrificed. And then John, interestingly, quotes from Zechariah chapter 12. Now, it says here, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And again, Jesus is fulfilling scripture. He asked when he was in Bethphage, remember there's Bethany, as you're heading to Jerusalem, you come to Bethany about two miles, a little bit less than two miles outside Jerusalem. And a little over a mile outside Jerusalem, you come to Bethphage. Bethphage is as you ascend the Mount of Olives. There is where he gets the donkey. And then when he crests the hill, that's when the disciples start laying down their cloaks and all these palm fronds. And they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, and so on and so forth. And, and he is sitting on a donkey. Do, do you happen to know the significance of when a king is sitting on a donkey? Because is it not true that most of the time, what, what do you see on the front page of a cool book cover about a king? What is he seated on? A donkey? No. What's he seated on, church? A horse. Generally a white one, but a horse, right? Because the horse is that beast of warfare. But a donkey, see, a donkey is a beast of peacetime. The Bible says that David's sons were given donkeys to ride. Now, I'm going to assume that they loved their donkey. They went everywhere with their donkey. And it was only during wartime that they actually rode horses. Now, we know this. They rode horses during wartime. And I just realized today even, do you know how Absalom was caught? He was caught with his hair in the bough of a tree while he was riding his donkey, not his horse. And I can't help but wonder, he was so cocky. He had no idea that they would break through the lines to the king and he would have to flee for his life. Because I tell you what, you don't want to flee for your life on a donkey. You're going to flee for your life on a horse. It's like 10 times faster. He apparently was caught off guard. That's my best guess. But donkeys were beasts of peace. And I'm just going to read 
I'm going to read from Zechariah. Here, here's what the prophecy says. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. <coughs> Just so you know, it's not John's purpose. <coughs> Excuse me. To quote this verse word for word or to quote everything. But he's coming on a donkey which for the people shouting Hosanna, in essence, save us. Save us from what? The oppression that rules us. You would expect Jesus to be riding on a horse, not a donkey, but he's riding on a donkey. Why? Because his battle is not with the government. His battle is not with physical force. He doesn't need a horse to challenge the enemy and overcome him. He rides on a donkey. He comes with peace. And it is that peace that is going to break the back of his enemy, which is sin and Satan. I want to read the next verse. It's Zechariah 9.10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. The chariots were for warfare. And the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow, bow will be broken. Why? Because this king, this riding on the donkey, he comes to bring peace. Let me read the last half of this verse. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. My goodness, he's not riding on a horse to conquer. He's riding on a donkey. What type of peace is this? How does he bring it about? He brings it about through the gospel of peace. He brings it about because he himself was punished that we might have peace. That's what Isaiah 53 says. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, the Passover lamb. Peace was going to be one at the altar. It wasn't going to be one hand to hand. There was not going to be that type of, those types of weapons with sword and shield and javelin or spear in which he would conquer this political power. No. His, his struggle was spiritual. His struggle was as he died on the cross, as he as the Paschal Lamb would to suffer and be punished, he would bring us peace. That was his goal. He came to bring peace. Now follow me one more step here. Because now Jesus is at the top of the Mount of Olives, and as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, who greets him? First, it's his disciples shouting Hosanna. But Luke lets us in on something. He says here, as he approached Jerusalem, Luke 19, 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, speaking about Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only known this day what would bring you peace. But it is now, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
Today, if you had only known what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. I'm taking you as king of Israel. I'm taking you through the city to the horns of the altar. This is what will bring bring you peace, but your eyes can't see it because it's a spiritual truth. You're expecting some, some sort of deliverance, and I didn't come to bring that deliverance. I came to bring deliverance over your sin and break the bondage that reigns over your life that's called sin, but it's now hidden from your eyes. If only today you had known what would bring bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies, this is now 30, excuse me, 40 years later, 70 AD, the Romans attacking Jerusalem, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. This is exactly what Rome did. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within you. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And then Jesus takes them to the temple. And he immediately recognizes they're not ready for me at all. Look what they're doing to the temple. Look at the all. Look what all they're. This is a charade. What are they doing? They've turned the temple, the place where they were to meet God, into a place for business transactions, man to man. Money dealing with money and the commodities. And the only commodity in the temple that was worth anything was the blood of the lamb, period. Jesus was not sacrificed on that altar. They had desecrated the temple, but he was sacrificed outside. The people were wanting salvation. Jesus led them to where they could find it, but it was hidden from them. The peace that they longed for, they couldn't see it. You see, it is the gospel, the Passover lamb being sacrificed on God's altar, that brings peace. Nothing else, no other success. What did they say in the psalm? Grant us success. Save us, grant us success now. That type of success is not success found in money. This help, this salvation, this peace that God wants to bring is not found in a marriage partner. It's not found in good friends. And and all of these things are good and helpful. And you know what? Money is necessary in our generation. Can't get around it. But are you looking for Salvation, are you looking for peace today? Are you looking for God to step in and grant you success? It's not found in any of this. Wives, don't look for your, to your husbands to find success. Husbands, don't look to your wives to find this success, this peace. Don't look to good friends. Children, great. I love children. I love grandchildren. I truly do. Even when they speak out during the sermon. I love a good job. None of that will bring what we need. None of it. The king of Israel, who steps into the altar, steps into the temple, I just can't help but wonder 
if Jesus, as he's surveying all of the corruption, casts his eyes upon the altar, the horns of the altar. And he just says, these people are not ready. And his heart again just breaks. He's about to go, he was going to go there to turn over the money changer's temple. I mean, I would say he knew what he was going to find. But he goes there, it's too late. He goes there, and it's too late. I can't help but wonder if John is playing on some imagery here. He goes there, and it's too late. That's why Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus weeps over this generation, church. Jesus weeps over it because if they only knew what would bring them peace, but what, how are they finding this peace? How are they finding happiness in this world? A little bit of, you know, a lot of money, a little bit of God, whatever type of God or whatever definition that they would use. Even atheists believe in some sort of power. For them, it's, I guess it's nature. But they worship it. They give their lives to it. Everybody does. They give their life to something. Whatever you give your life to, that is your God. (coughs) That God can never save. The only one that can is this one that came to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He is the one that was to be sacrificed. I, I find it interesting that in John chapter 12 here, in verse 11, it says that the Pharisees were so wearied by everybody hearing about Jesus, excuse me, yeah, Lazarus' resurrection from the dead, that now not only do they want to kill Jesus, now they want to kill Lazarus. That leads us into this story of where people are just so attracted to Jesus. They've heard about Lazarus' resurrection. They want to go and they want to find out. And they're shouting without realizing it. They're shouting, save us! And Jesus takes them to the temple. They still don't get it. Five points I pointed out to you that Jesus fulfilled on that day from Psalm 118. And then he takes them to the altar. They want to kill Jesus. They want to quiet this uprising in which the people are looking to Jesus. The one who in the Pharisees' eyes broke the Sabbath, remember? Healed on the Sabbath. Oh, my goodness. And then in verse 19, they say this. The Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. See, Mary privately expressed her extravagant devotion. The disciples in the crowd here publicly expressed this cry of save us, and they praise him. And they did this all on account of what Jesus did. Church, I want to tell you, the gospel, as it goes out into the world, as you declare it, just like they declare Jesus raising Lazarus from that and word spread, people want to find out is this Jesus. As we are spreading the gospel, as you're testifying to what Jesus has done for you, so simple, church, but as you declare the power of God displayed in your life and rescuing you, there is this sense of inevitability 
in which even Satan himself has no control over. He can impact it here and there. The Pharisees tried to do that, and they eventually actually killed Jesus. But if there is, like, the greatest ending to any story in which it initially appears like the enemy triumphed at the end of the book, it would be this one. But did he? Did he really? Jesus is killed three days later. Church, what happened? Tell me. What happened three days later? Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. He is the epitome of literature's concept of a hero. Jesus triumphs over death and the grave. He triumphs over Satan. Satan tries so hard, even through the Pharisees, to shut this down. And he, he fails miserably. Because you can't thwart the inevitability of God's plan. You can't. And I'm, and there, now I'm not saying that you can't, that Satan can't blind eyes. Oh, he does that to all unbelievers. Very successfully. So that they cannot see the light of the gospel. They can't. And so God has to step in and the Father has to draw the sinner to himself, to Jesus. And then as you learned in chapter 6, verse 45, and they listen and they learn and there is something that begins to break through in their hearts and they will inevitably come to him. Everyone that listens and learns comes to Jesus. Everyone. Now I'm only going to suppose that those that you have preached the gospel to that seemed to listen and learn but died in their sin, I'm going to suggest it only was that way on the outside. When God begins to pull the sinner, he doesn't stop until they're there. Until they, like this festal throng, view the altar and the Lamb of God sacrificed and they cry out again, save us, Hosanna, Yahweh, come save us. Now we beseech you. That's the cry of the heart that God answers. You know, it's inevitable. Paul, on the, on the road to Damascus, he was an enemy of Jesus persecuting the church to the point where he was having people thrown into prison and many of them were put to death. And the blood was on his hands. And if there was ever anyone that Satan used to just snuff out the light of the gospel, it would have been Paul, Saul, but what happened to him? You know the story. God basically said, ha, 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 really? Oh, I've got plans for you, young man. And the inevitability of God's plan was fulfilled. And he shone from heaven in a bright light, and he saw, fell to the ground, blinded. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And something broke in Saul's heart. Apostle souls broken his heart that day, and for three days he was fasting and praying. Finally, Ananias comes, lays hands on him, he receives his sight, and he's filled with the Spirit and immediately, boldly proclaims this inevitable gospel. I know for myself, I remember hearing the gospel as my brother shared it with me, and I could, I still remember to this day this resistance. And it was as if God just suddenly took that truth and he pressed it into my heart. 
And I began to realize I am not a Christian. I am truly not a believer in Jesus Christ. And God opened my eyes to what it meant to truly believe in Jesus. I've, I've done the religious thing all of my life. I raised my hands and, yeah, of course I want to go to heaven. I'll raise my hand for that one. And who wouldn't, right? Had I ever surrendered my heart? I See, I hadn't. I was like those saying, save us, save us, following Jesus, blinded to what would truly bring them peace. That was me. But God in his inevitable gospel broke through and it was like a flame was ignited and I wanted him. I was not going to leave my brother's bedroom until I had sought him until I knew for sure that I was one with Christ, that Christ had won me. I'm going to just ask you in closing, where are you in this journey? Have you truly made that choice? I'm going to follow Jesus. No matter what the cost, we saw that cost as Mary broke that expensive bottle of perfume. And now how about the inevitability? No matter what the enemy does, when the Father starts drawing you, you will come. Is the Father drawing you? Can you feel that inevitability? Sorry, whenever I say that word, I remember in the Matrix where, he, where Mr. Smith has in the subway and he has Neo pressed against the, guard, the, the rails of the train, the subway train, and, he, and the, you can hear the train, and he being the bad guy says, do you hear that, Mr., uh, Mr. Anderson? That is the sound of inevitability. And what happens at that moment? Neo throws him off, and of course, Neo survives. And I'm going to just tell you, regardless of what the devil whispers in your ear, the inevitability is on God's side as he is drawing you, as he is saying, do you want to really be rescued? Let me take you to the altar. That is where you will make your life decision. That is where this heart commitment, as it's surrendered to Jesus, you will find yourself totally changed. I want to close in prayer. And I want to just... Ask us, have we made that choice? I am going to follow Jesus.